Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we're here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. So hopefully everybody had a nice spooky Halloween. We're probably not going to do anything. <laughs> it's actually not Halloween yet, but um, I have a feeling we're not going to do anything. If we were to record this on the Monday that it comes out, I would probably be hungover. So <laughs> perfect. Hopefully I will be. So cross my fingers. I'm sure some of you are also hungover like Maddie will be today. So enjoy that. So this week we've been working on getting our cards ready to send out for our 100 Patreons. We're about to hit 100 and all of our Patreons are getting a limited edition sticker of our original logo coming their way. And then we also started working on our Christmas cards. So yeah, get ready for that. So if you join Patreon very soon, you get very nice surprises. including a Christmas card. Yep. Today, we are bringing you the Morehouse murders. Now, this case does contain discussion of sexual assault, homicide, and suicide. So, keep that in mind. So, to thoroughly tell the story of the Morehouse murders, we have to first start by telling you about David Burney, and Catherine Margaret Harrison. How wonderful of people they are. Yeah, that is not what we're going to be talking about, but... (laughs) So our case today starts with David Burney, and he was born on February 16 of 1951, and he was born into a pretty hard life. His mother had alcohol dependence problems, and his father worked hard for the family, but wasn't home often. Now, David's father had a genetic defect, which caused his back to bend forward, and this got worse over time. He had four siblings, and even at a young age, David started showing signs of aggression. So he would do things like if he messed up on a paper, he would violently like run his crayon across the the paper. There was also a lot of like angry body language when he got upset. So, I don't know. Not the biggest red flag, but yeah, could just be a temper. I don't know. Oh, and by the age of eight, he was committing petty burglary and breaking and entering. At eight? At eight. Now, David was the eldest child, and so he was often responsible for his younger siblings. And... The home environment was kind of described as a very unhealthy, very messy, dirty, like the house was never cleaned kind of environment. Well, and you've got you've got an eight-year-old taking care of his younger siblings while also stealing and breaking and entering. So I'm not terribly surprised by that. No. There were also rumors surrounding assault, physical, and sexual Inside the household, so amongst the children and parents. There were also rumors that Mrs. Bernie would exchange sexual favors for things. Mm, Never a good start, yeah. Eventually, all the children went to some form of care. Right, so foster care, care of other households, things like that, yeah. And as David got older, it was very evident that he had a very high sex drive And he would get very frustrated if he didn't have sex every day. Red flag. Mm Mm-hmm. 
What? Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not okay. Okay, so he propositioned his younger brother Jamie at one point, but was rejected. And he didn't take this well, and later that night snuck into his brother's room and took what he wanted anyway. That's a huge red flag. So obviously Jamie is not living his best life right now. And now we're going to talk about Catherine Margaret Harrison, who was born on May 23 of 1951. So she is three months younger than David. So Catherine's mom had actually died in childbirth when Catherine was only two years old. And the baby didn't survive either. So Catherine's younger sibling. And Catherine was sent to live with her father in South Africa. Wow. She lived with him for a few years, but his attention was kind of fickle. He wanted her around sometimes, and other times he wanted nothing to do with her. That would be so confusing as a child. She was also abused by her father and eventually sent back to live with her grandparents. And her grandmother was very strict and didn't really want a young child in the house. So this probably didn't help Catherine either. So then she was sent to live with her aunt and uncle, and her aunt and uncle lived next door to David Burney. So this is how David and Catherine would cross paths. Yeah, David was smart and liked to read, and Catherine found him interesting, and they struck up a friendship. But the two of them did lose touch over the years because David would repeatedly be taken into care, sent away from his home. So in 1966, at the age of 15, David left school and began working for horse trainer Eric Parnham at Ascot Racecourse. So David hoped to become an apprentice jockey. Right. So jockeys are like the riders that race horses, if you didn't know that. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. I feel like everyone knows that. Eric found him accommodation at a local boarding house. But soon after, the landlady complained to Eric that David had tried to sexually assault her. Jesus Christ. Good job, David. Good. Way to get yourself kicked out. Way to, yeah, you really want. Assault your landlady? Yeah, not not the best plan. Um, Also, she had a tiny dog that had gone berserk and run off. And this was, she assumed, because of David. Maybe David did do something to your yappy dog. In 1969, David and Catherine meet up again. Oh, and that year, Catherine and David added 73 offenses to an already long list. They included car theft, possession of explosives, they even broke into a safe, and were arrested for a jailbreak as well. I don't know if they were trying to break out themselves or trying to break somebody else out. Solid. But either way, they have now become partners in crime. And it also doesn't sound like they were very good at crime because they continued to get caught but received leniency over and over again because of their young age. In 1971, when Catherine was 20 years old, she went to jail for six months. And this encounter kind of seemed to scare her straight. She was no longer dependent on David when she was released and she got a job as a housemaid for the McLaughlin family. She fell in love with one of the McLaughlin sons, Don, and they got married on her 21st birthday. The couple did have six children and appeared to be happy, 
It almost sounds like she escaped her fate with David, but that will not be the case. But tragedy befell the family when Catherine's first son, who was only a toddler, was out in the driveway when he was struck by a vehicle right in front of her, and he did not survive this. Now, Peter, Catherine's youngest son, later said that he thinks this may have triggered something in her and contributed to her instability later in life. That same year, David met a local girl called Carrie, and they were introduced to each other by one of David's brothers. Thanks, David's brother. Like, if I had a brother like David, I don't think I'd be introducing people to him. (laughs) Either way, they met. The next night, they went to a movie, and they came home engaged. And one month later, they got married. Sounds like a recipe for success. And they had a daughter named Tanya. Now, not long after this, David is working on a barge in Bunbury, which is about two hours south of Perth. And the barge moved, and a guy above him lost his grip, and a drum dropped on David's head. Now, this left a nasty gash and a head injury that kind of seemed to change David a little bit. His ex-wife, Carrie, claims that his personality drastically changed after this. He became shorter with her, and he would pick on things that never even bothered him before the incident. He had a few affairs, which Carrie was aware of, all after the accident. I don't know if we can blame the affairs on the head injury, David. I don't know about that. But she did say that David was a slave to his cravings, and he seemed to seek sex wherever he could get it, which that's not terribly surprising based on his behaviors when he was younger. Now, Carrie was looking at the Desperate and Dateless, which is a personal ad in the Sunday Times, and she found an ad by David, bored husband, looking for fun times. So I'm not sure how I would feel if I found a personal ad Put in the paper by my husband saying he was a bored husband looking for fun times. I feel like you'd be unsurprised because she already knew that David had a few affairs. Yeah, I mean, my question is, was she looking in the ads for a date herself? Or was she checking to see if he had put something in the ads? Hmm. Hmm. Maybe she was just reading it for fun. I don't know. Their marriage did come to an end when he brought a 16-year-old girl who he called a babysitter, home to live with him. And Carrie was going to have none of this, and she moved out with their daughter. Well, what's the babysitter going to do now? (laughs) Yeah? Yeah? Uh. So in February of 1985, Catherine and David would meet up again. So Catherine wasn't happy in her marriage, and one day she was simply going for a walk, and just never came back. And yeah. she she left all of her kids. And went and lived with David. Cool, cool. I wonder if the babysitter's still yes. there. Her husband, Don, did report her missing to the police at 1 a.m. But, yeah. Oh, her youngest was just six. Yeah, I cannot imagine leaving my children, especially the youngest one being Phoenix's age. She actually reported in to the police shortly after this saying that she was fine and wasn't missing and just didn't want to go home. 
Now, Catherine actually took David's surname by deed poll, which means basically that she... Just took his name. Yep. She Well, she just changed her name. They didn't get married or anything, though. But they are officially now the Bernies. The couple moved into Three Morehouse Street, Willoughby, which is a working-class suburb of Perth. Yep. And David took a job as a car wrecker. I don't know what that exactly entails, but I feel like it's going to be really good for hiding bodies at some point. No? No, actually, he doesn't use it to hide bodies, but that would have been a better idea probably. Because a car wrecker, does. like, I imagine, like, he, like, is the person that, like, smashes the old cars. Yeah, I always think of, there's, like, an episode of Criminal, of Criminal Minds Mind. <laughs> where the guy kills oh, his, it's he, so like, disturbing. kills his best friend who, like, married his wife and, like, into a car compactor. Like a car crusher. And he, like, crushes yeah. him in with the car and turns him into, like, a cube. No, I can't. I can't. So, this would not be the healthiest of relationships. David would definitely play out his sadistic fantasies with Catherine. And, fun fact, on his brother's 21st birthday, his brother Jamie, he gave him Catherine because Jamie was a virgin. Cool. Poor Jamie. Well, I'm sure that messed with him too, yeah. Well, he grew up to be a convicted sex offender. Yep. Told his parole officer what David did to him whilst trying to work through his issues. Well, and isn't Jamie the one that he sexually assaulted yeah. earlier in life, too? Yeah. yeah. So, Catherine and David spent some tri- time trying to make David's fantasy of a threesome a reality, but no one wanted to participate. Shocking. Probably because looking at David, it gives me the creeps. I feel like he looks kind of normal. Really? Yeah, I mean, the mustache and the big nose is what is creeping you out, I think. <laughs> you think I'm afraid of big noses or something? No, but, like, some serial killers have, like, really big noses. Have you noticed that? No. Look at his nose. It's huge. It's, like, half of his face. Well, <laughs> yeah, so the big. man has a big nose. I don't know. Okay. Catherine was determined to get him what he wanted. So they decided to do the next logical thing, which would be to abduct a girl off the street. Uh, Obviously. On Monday, October 6th, 1986, Mary Frances Nilsson entered Oriental Spares, and this is the mechanic wrecking place where David works. Now, Mary's father was a friend of the owner, and he held an account there. Mary was a 22-year-old university student, the University of Western Australia, and she was studying psychology. She worked part-time at a delicatessen and lived in a nice area of Perth. Now, if you don't know what a delicatessen is, it is a store that sells cold cuts, cheese, and a variety of salads, as well as a selection of unusual foreign prepared foods. So she works at a deli? It sounds like it. You Maddie, think that that's... I, ha- I had to look it up. I didn't know what a delicatessen was, but it sounds like a deli. I would really like to know from our Australian listeners if you guys call it a delicatessen. Yeah, do you guys there. just call it the deli? Because that's what we call it here. Or do you call it the delica- delicatessen? I need to know. I really need to know now because I didn't even know that. Boom, but Maddie was right about something. I know, it's amazing. Okay, so Mary needed new tires for her car, which is what brought her into the shop that day. And David oh, got I need new tires for my car. Yeah. 
And David got to chatting with her, and he mentioned that he had some tires laying around at home that he could give her for a better price. If any mechanic ever tries to tell you this, tell him to fuck off and walk away. When David got home, he spoke to Catherine, who called Mary and set up the meeting. Mary came to the house at 3 Morehouse Street and was attacked upon entering the house. She was held at knife point, tied to the bed, and sexually assaulted under the watchful and encouraging eye of Catherine. Catherine even participated. When the attack was over, Catherine guarded Mary whilst David made a short drive into town in Mary's car. He needed to get it away from the Morehouse Street should anyone come looking for Mary. So obviously, Catherine and David had planned out some of these details ahead of time. He parked Mary's car in a car park directly outside the Central Police Headquarters. They thought this would be like hiding it in plain sight. David then returned to the house and assaulted Mary another time with Catherine watching, and the couple decided that there was no way they could let Mary go. Oh, and the Bernays had even read a book called The Perfect Murder to help them with their crimes. Cool. Good. Now, they used this book as a guide on what to do, basically. So, according to Catherine, the pair had spent weeks planning and preparing what they would do exactly and how they would do it. At this point, Mary was bound and gagged and placed in the Bernie's car. She was taken 57 kilometers away from the Morehouse Street to the Glen Eagle National Park. Now, this area is actually far away from suburban limits of Perth. So it's not that touristy. It's on a main highway, but it's out of town to the south. So on a dirt track, surrounded by large pine trees, in the dark, they stop the car, where David assaults her again. And then Uh. once he was finished, he strangled her with a nylon rope and stabbed her in the chest. So this would be the first victim of David and Catherine. Then David took a shovel from the boot of the car and dug Mary a shallow grave in the loose, sandy soil. So Mary was reported missing straight away. So it was out of character for her to be out of contact with people and away from her family. So police did background research and found no skeletons in Mary's closet. They found her sudden disappearance troubling and progressed it from a missing person to a suspected homicide. Yeah, which is good on them for determining that she probably didn't take off. I think this is the first one. Uh, I've seen that. It wasn't like, oh, she's an adult. On Monday, October 20. 1986, so October 20, oh my gosh, so like later that month. Not even another month. Oh my gosh. Catherine and David would go out hunting. They had a circuit that they would travel along Canning Highway and then down Sterling Highway and back. Now, Canning Highway is the highway that ACDC wrote Highway to Hell about, by the way. So... It would be on this road that they would find 15-year-old Susanna Candy, who was hitchhiking along Sterling Highway in Claremont. So it would be in this area that they would pick up 15-year-old Susanna Candy, who was hitchhiking along Sterling Highway in Claremont. 15. 
She's only 15. She's Lulu's age. She was a young girl who lived with her family in Needland. So her father was one of the state's top ophthalmic surgeons. And just for some perspective, Detective Sergeant Paul Ferguson in 1986 said, if someone offered you a friendly hand, you took it. People told their children, if you ever get into trouble, look for a policeman. If you can't find a policeman, look for a married couple, a male and a female, family people. They'll look after you. So if you think it's strange that this 15-year-old girl, Susanna, would get into a vehicle with a man and a woman, it's really not that strange. Because... No one's in the 80s. Everyone was hitchhiking everywhere. I mean... All over the place. I've <laughs> People still hitchhike in Australia. I've definitely done some hitchhiking, and I'd be thrilled to get a couple instead of, like, just a guy. And yeah, Australia definitely, there's been a lot of people murdered hitchhiking in Australia. Like, can we stop hitchhiking in Australia, please? Um, it's still, I Cause feel we like this, we, we ran the numbers. I feel like we ran the numbers on this. When they were out driving, Catherine would be the one that called the shots, and she would decide who they picked up. They decided that they did want Savannah, and they picked her up and held her at knife point as they drove her back to Morehouse Street. Once at the house, she was gagged and tied to the bed where she was sexually assaulted, just like Mary. Susanna was forced by the Bernies to write letters to her family saying that she had gone to QLD with friends. She wrote four letters in total. So QLD is Queensland. Yes, I had to look it up. What part of, what part of Australia are we in right now? We're near Perth. Also, side note, the writing of letters... The messaging to family, the calling family, all of that, I hate it so, so much. Yeah, it's gross. The following morning, Susanna was threatened with death if she didn't make a carefully scripted phone call to her parents saying that she'd be staying with friends for a little while, preempting the letters. I don't know if she actually got through to her parents, though. David then assaulted her again. Catherine got into bed and tried to strangle Susanna, but she's able to fight Catherine off because she's just not strong enough. So they force sleeping pills down Susanna's throat, and once she is unconscious, they tie a nylon cord around her neck and strangle her together. They load Susanna's body into the car and drive it out to Green Eagle, near Mary's body. They dig a shallow grave and bury Susanna. Her family was still receiving letters long after she was dead. Imagine to find out after the fact that you think that your daughter's run away. You're furious. You're pissed off at her. You think she ran away with friends. You think she's on the other side of Australia. Mm -hmm. She's missing. You're getting letters from her. You're probably just angry and like sad that your daughter's missing. Then years later or whenever the fuck the family found out, You find out that that's not the case. That she was dead and had never even sent you a letter. Well, it's like the Israel Keys case. I mean, he sent messages, the ransom note, like all of it. I can't. Yeah. Okay. On Saturday, November 1, 1986. So the last kidnapping was on the 20th of October. (laughs) 
So we're like this 10 like, days later. This is like 10 days later. Nothing. Yeah. Nolene Patterson, who was 31, was standing beside her car along Canning Highway, having run out of gas. No, don't run out of gas. Run out of petrol. She worked at Nedlin's Golf Club as a bar manager. Nolene was quite glamorous and used to be a hostess. She even worked on Alan Bond's aeroplane at one stage. Alan Bond is a UK-born Australian businessman, and he would go on to be the first non-American to win America's Cup Sailing Trophy. So that would have been a big deal in Perth. So she was standing on the side of the highway when she was spotted by the Bernies. They offered to give her a ride to get help, and she saw no reason not to trust the couple because she needed the help. So she got in their car. Again, she was threatened and driven to the Morehouse Street where she was gagged and chained to the bed. Nolene was a little older than Bernie's previous victims and maybe a little wiser. She started trying to befriend David, hopeful that she'd be able to talk her way out of being bound and ultimately be able to escape or save her life. Nolene's plan seemed to work, but a little too well. And in fact, David became entranced by Nolene. She was quite the contrast to the scruffy Catherine. I don't think I'd like to be described as scruffy. Now, Nolene cooperated with demands to make phone calls home to allay fears there. She called a friend to say that her vehicle was parked along Canning Highway and explained that she had run out of fuel. She told the friend that she was staying with friends and that everything was okay. She asked if that friend would go and get her car and park it safely until she returned. So, Nolene was held captive for two full days, and David's infatuation with her meant that he wasn't ready to let her go. It would appear that Nolene was David's fantasy come true, and he wanted to keep her. On the second day of Nolene's captivity, Catherine and David had a huge fight. Shocking. Catherine actually storms out of the house. And when she returns, she issues an ultimatum to David. She goes or I go. Either kill Nolene or Catherine would kill herself. Now, remember, the Bernies have a mutual obsession with each other. And David ends up relenting to killing Nolene. Catherine and David force sleeping medication down her throat, and once she is unconscious, Catherine strangles her. They then load her into the car and make the trip out to Glen Eagle. When they get there, David insists that Nolene be buried away from the other bodies. David said, Nolene was different and deserves to be put in a different place from the other girls. Also, while digging the shallow grave, David hurts his foot. David hurts his foot. How does he hurt? (laughs) I don't know. He still went to work the next morning, but he was noticeably limping. And when asked about his injury, he said that he tripped while playing with the dogs. Do they have dogs? Yes. So on Wednesday, November 5th, Denise Karen Brown, who was 21, and a part-time computer operator was out with a friend at the Stone Crow Wine Bar. She decided to catch the bus home at a stop that was just outside the bar. While waiting, 
Catherine and David saw her and decided to offer her a lift. Don't do it. She accepted and was threatened and taken to Morehouse Street. And at this point, this is a well-rehearsed process. So Denise was told to remove her clothing and jewelry. Catherine would make a meticulous list of clothing and personal effects. Yeah. Similar packages of personal items were found with each body, suggesting that this was part of their process. And this was to ensure that no items were left behind at the Moore house that could tie the Bernies to the murders. And then, like usual, Catherine watched as David sexually assaulted Denise. The following morning, Denise is forced to make a phone call to a friend saying that she would be away for a few days. Denise called the friend that she'd been out with that night, and this raised some serious red flags. This was a random friend, and if she was going to be away, she would usually call her flatmate to let her know. Right, but the Bernies wouldn't have known that. Yeah. So her boyfriend and flatmate were immediately suspicious. Yeah, her boyfriend actually said if Denise is going to be staying overnight or a little bit later with friends, she usually rings up the flat where she is living. And the flatmate said it just wasn't like her to not ring her and let her know. So it was not clear if this was a clever move on Denise's part to try to get help, but it led her to be reported missing straight away. I would say that it was probably intentional because... If she had done this before and always rang her flatmate. So Denise is the Bernie's third victim. But David continues the rest of his life like normal. He goes to work as usual, does his usual thing. Um, And during Denise's capture, he even visited his young daughter, Tanya. So they're keeping up appearances on their end that life is just normal. Because he's got Catherine at home to watch them while he goes to work or while he goes and does things. And during this visit, Catherine called David's ex-wife, Carrie, and said, tell him our guest is waiting. Oh, that's so disturbing. So they loaded Denise into their car alive and drove her to the Nangara Pine Plantation to the north of Perth instead of Glen Eagle to the southeast. Yeah, I wonder why they decided to change it up. I don't know. Do you think David just couldn't bear to bury anyone where he had buried his precious Nolene? Yeah, probably. So when they arrive in the forest, David sexually assaults her again. When David's done, he cuts her throat. Oh my gosh. David digs a shallow grave and places Denise in it. He is about to bury her when she sits up in the grave. To this... David panics and grabs an axe out of the boot of his car. He hit her with the axe twice in the back of the head. Ugh. I can't. Now, all of these disappearances are starting to raise suspicion. The thought that a serial killer might be responsible wasn't really a natural thought that people had. It was out of the ordinary. People were mainly just concerned but not panicked at this point. Mm -hmm. So Paul Ferguson, he notices the increase in disappearances and embarks on an investigation. He's trying to establish possible links between the women to determine the reason for their disappearances. He quickly eliminated the possibility of a link between the women because obviously they're all taken at random, right? Mm -hmm. 
He also eliminated reasons that they might disappear, like secret partners, married lovers, hidden drug problems, and he really didn't find anything. One strange thing is that both Susanna and Denise hadn't completely disappeared. There were two letters delivered to Susanna's parents after she went missing. One was sent from Perth and the other was sent from Fremantle, which is a coastal suburb town of Perth. And Denise had phoned a friend the day after her disappearance. So nothing really conclusive, but his police instincts felt like something was wrong. And he called one of his colleagues, Detective Sergeant Vince Ketrick, and urgently called for a task force to be put in place to investigate the disappearances, which good for him. Now, on Sunday, November 9, 1986, Paul Ferguson visited Denise's mother for an interview, and he established that it was significantly out of character. Later that same day, Kate Moore, who was 17, was out for a night with friends. They started at Cotslow Pub, and then moved to Claremont Hotel and watched a band called Lick the Lizard. Kate was friends with one of the band, by the way. She was a bit of a rebel, but in a lively way. And she had dropped out of school and worked full-time at Cherry Lane's, which is a clothing store, and was also a model on the side. She did, however, go to school with Susanna Candy and was two years below her. But this is just small-town coincidence. Around 10.30 p.m., they left the Claremont Hotel and a few friends from the band offered to drive her home. They took her most of the way and offered to drive her to the house, but they weren't far from her parents' house, so Kate opted to walk the rest of the way. She was a little woozy from drinking and hoped that the fresh air would do her good. She was set to walk the rest of the way to her house when a car came around the corner. Now... Kate was reassured by Catherine's presence in the car, and she decided to get in. Why? So Catherine and David drive her to her home and park outside. But when Kate went to get out, she realizes that there are no door handles or window winders. David pulls his butcher's knife from his Ugg boot and holds it to her throat. They took Kate from her parents' house to a place called The Lookout, about 600 meters away. There, Catherine binds Kate's hands and feet and covers her with a blanket. Kate risks the question. She asks, are you going to rape me or are you going to kill me? And Catherine says, if you're good, we'll only rape you. Ugh. When they arrive at Morehouse Street, the Bernies cut her bindings and made her surrender her personal items, leaving her in her undies and a singlet, which is like a tank top, right? Singlet is like a onesie. Singlet is like a one-piece. For kids it is, but for, I don't know. Is it not? Does it have a different meaning for adults I think it does, but I don't know for sure. Okay. They put her effects in plastic bags and wrote her name on them with sticky labels. They made her shower while Catherine watched. They then took her into the lounge room. They asked her who she was. They got her full address, her birth date. They put music and a movie on at the same time. With music blaring, she sat there watching Rambo with her captors. How weird would that be? So weird. Uh, They offered her a smoke, and she saw it as an opportunity. Maybe if she got them stoned enough, they wouldn't be as violent. They made her dance for David. 
They left knives strewn across the floor within her reach, but Kate was too scared to grab them because she didn't want them to be used on her. So she never actually went for a knife. Around 12.30 p.m. that night, so about two hours after being captured, David sexually assaulted Kate. Catherine sat on the chair at the end of the bed with a notebook. Kate gathered up the confidence to ask what she was doing, and Catherine told her, I'm taking down notes to improve David and I's sex life. Barf. Catherine, I do not like you so much. Kate is then sent to the shower again while Catherine watches. When she is led back into the bedroom, they had put four chains on the four corners of the single bed, each numbered. They chain her up and leave her there. It's at this point that Kate realizes the severity of her situation, probably because it doesn't appear that they're going to let her go. She asks for a pen and paper, and this time Catherine and David don't have to force her to write letters because Kate wants to say goodbye to the people she loves. To her sister, she writes an apology for being selfish and going out with friends instead of spending time with her. To her parents, she wrote, Sorry if I've been a bad daughter. She wrote five letters in total. That is just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. So Kate would scream as loud as she could, hoping that somebody would hear her. They were in a residential neighborhood, after all, with close neighbors. Within a minute or so, David entered the room to say, sleeping arrangements have changed. Kate was unchained and brought into the main bedroom where she was sexually assaulted again. She was chained by her ankle to David. He gave her a sleeping pill and took one himself. There was no way Kate was sleeping. She took the pill from under her tongue and placed it under the bed between the mattress and the bed frame. Smart. So on Monday, November 10th, Kate was forced to call her parents. Mm. And she told them that she got really drunk and was staying at a friend's house. Yeah, and her parents didn't know that she drank at all. So she was trying to leave a clue that something was wrong or at least try to make them angry so that they would go out looking for her. So while on the phone, she memorized the phone number of the Bernies. Right. And if you ever had like an old school phone, the phone number would usually be printed on the phone. Mm -hmm. Let us know if your phones in the 80s had a phone number written, that the phone number written on it. Kate had a similar thought as Nolene. If she befriended the Bernies, possibly she would have a better chance of survival. But in contrast to Nolene, she instead gradually befriends Catherine. Much smarter, actually. Um, yeah, I would have gone for that in the first place. Yeah. I feel like the female in most parts has a lot bigger sway in things than you would think. Well, and Nolene might have been doomed no matter what because David was infatuated with yeah, her. Yeah, I think she was doomed from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, so this befriending of Catherine actually works, and she agrees to untie Kate. Right, so she can, like, move around a little easier and be more comfortable. Yeah, and now that she's a little bit more free to move, um, at every possible moment, Kate tries to leave clues that she hopes will incriminate the Bernies. Mm -hmm. Like, little items around the house. That right, would... because she's like, if they're going to kill me, I want to make sure that somebody knows I was here somehow. 
Now, on November 11, 1986, early in the morning, David leaves for work as usual, leaving Catherine and Kate alone in the house. Meanwhile, Paul Ferguson and Vince Kadich are setting up a task force to investigate Denise's disappearance. Vince Kadich went to the Stone Crow wine bar where Denise was last seen. He spoke to a witness across the road from the bus stop where Denise was waiting and asked if she remembered seeing Denise and showed her a photo. She recognized the picture, but wrongly identified that Denise had gotten on the bus heading towards Fremantle. So they find this witness who's like, yeah, I saw her. She got on the bus, which she didn't do. Also on this day, reports of Denise's disappearance make the morning paper, which is now sitting inside Morehouse Street. Catherine and Kate were sitting in the lounge room together, and Monday's paper sat there with Denise Brown's face on the front page. Catherine started laughing, and Kate said, what's funny? And Catherine replied, you'd think a big girl like that could look after herself. About Denise. One thing, apart from being an appalling thing to say, you couldn't tell from the photo in the paper Denise's body type at all. So Kate is like, great, Catherine and David had something to do with Denise's disappearance. So knowing that the couple had probably done this before, Kate decided that she needed to continue to be nice and compliant with Catherine in order to survive. And it was about this time that there was a knock at the door. Catherine got up and said to Kate, go to the room, shut up, or I'll kill you. Catherine was heading to the door to do a drug deal. Cool. Catherine quickly answered the door, and in her rush, she had forgotten to chain Kate to the bed. Kate realized that this was her opportunity. She didn't know exactly what had happened to Denise, but she knew she needed to risk trying to escape. So she took a big risk in making noise to break the lock on the window, and she pushed the window open, jumped through the window, but hit her head on the way down, but still manages to get up and run. And that is going to be the end of part one. Did we forget to mention this was a (laughs) two-parter? So sorry about that, you guys. This is going to be a two-parter, and you're going to have to come back Next week, to find out what happens for part to Kate. two, we're leaving you at a cliffhanger as well because we're terrible people. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, so in closing, we have a couple of things to talk about. One, we wanted to thank Eugenia DePietro for our coffee today. For our coffee today. So we added a link into our Instagram bio that is. If anybody wants to buy us coffee. And we hadn't even announced that we did it yet, but she found it anyway. So yeah, if you want to buy us coffee and get a call out on the show, head to our link on Instagram. Second, we have new Patreons. And we are so excited about this because we are almost to 100 Patreons, you guys. And as soon as we hit 100, everybody gets their free new limited edition sticker. So Sign up for Patreon if you want a cool sticker. If you sign up, if you're a new sign up, you get two stickers. Yeah, you'll get our normal sticker and you'll get our limited edition sticker too. So you can't really go wrong there. I mean, come on. Okay, so we have Tanya Sokol. Sokol? 
I don't know. Hi, Tanya. Welcome to Patreon. Thank you so much. We have Jessica Workman. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to Patreon. And we have Faye Carta. Hi, Faye. Welcome to Patreon. We have Mel Fernandez. Hi, Mel. Welcome to Patreon. Thank you, all of you, so very much for supporting us. We really, really appreciate you guys. You're amazing, and we literally couldn't do this without you. Yeah, so thank you so much to all of our Patreons. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. We really appreciate you guys tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. Happy Halloween. (laughs) All right, bye, guys. Bye.